0: Hey everyone, we recorded this podcast on the evening of Sunday, March 21st. We decided to have a talk with our friends in the AAPI community, Nick Pond and Humphrey Swee. You'll recognize Nick from season one, episode 24, the special case episode. We had a little bit of technical difficulties uh, on this show, but uh, my Wi-Fi was cutting out and Nick was gracious enough to uh, record it all for us um, on a single track. So you may notice a little bit of extra in the background, but We believe that this conversation really needs to be heard, and it's worth kind of a little bit of noise in the background. So I really want to thank you for for listening through this. I'm going to go ahead and introduce Humphrey, and we'll get right into the show. Humphrey Sweep is a 25-year-old Asian American from New York City. Living in the city his whole life, he went to Brooklyn Technical High School, then moved on to Brooklyn College, and now teaches at a middle school in, you guessed it, Brooklyn. In his spare time, he enjoys writing about men's style and history. Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerbilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky, And I'm Albert Imprato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. Season two of the Veer Vulnerbilis Veer podcast is sponsored by our good friends at Standard & Strange, where the clothes and the people are anything but ordinary and the motto is own fewer, better things. All right, Albert. We are back again. Um, last week we were very excited. We had a no gathering of of the uh, the roundtable there, but uh, this week, um, you know, we're we're kind of meeting on different circumstances, and uh, really happy that we're we're having this conversation. Yeah, I, I'm just psyched for for our guests that we're going to have here and and have have this talk. But um, I wanted you to to kind of pop in and tell us a little bit about why we're why we're having this special show today.
1: Well. Um, Nick pond is a very dear friend. I've known Nick. Oh my God. How long has it been? 15 years. It's been a while. We, uh, Nick is an absolutely fabulous singer, really accomplished tenor. And, uh, we have many mutual friends and we've known each other and talk about just about every issue. We talk about literature, the arts, uh, you name it, um, social trends, political, issues and we we talk about everything and nick happens to be quite a quite a busy writer as well as performer and um he's done this challenge this past month of trying to write a fresh blog post uh every day sort of like sort of pandemic era try to use every day in the most productive way imaginable and use the time off to um to Focus. Think. Come up with new ideas, new projects. So anyway, Nick um, was just getting ready to finish his thirtieth post when the uh, the killings happened in Atlanta, and so his last his last post was about uh, the headline says the Americanness of anti Asian violence, and it's um I urge everybody to go check out Nick's uh, uh, blog. Uh, we'll remind you about it later, but it it made some really really critical points, um, and I just figured rather than me enjoy them and send them out on Twitter, it would be better to invite Nick on to join us and uh, and to discuss them himself. And uh, it also dawned on me that I have my my friend Humphrey, who I hadn't uh, talked to recently, but who I've I have talked about various. Uh, issues with and i thought uh humphrey should join the conversation and thankfully they were both free and both of them are our guests tonight so that's how it happened all right so i'm i'm calling in (laughs) (laughs) guys having some some wi-fi issues
2: and um albert you were uh you were mentioning nick's uh blog and you know we we had a chance to to read that and it was just a kind of a sad way to, to end the challenge. Um, and you know, I mean that it is, it is something to write about, but to, to end it on that kind of note definitely is a, a little tough. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm happy to, to have Humphrey here as well, um, along with Nick and just really just kind of to talk about it. Cause I think this is a, a discussion that we're going to have, uh, for quite some time going forward, so based on, on what's been the last year and, and the temperature of you know our, our conversations here in America.
3: Well, what
1: struck me in uh, Nick's piece is he referenced uh, President Biden and his well-meaning uh, words, his statement, and um, I I thought as I first read it, wow, I wonder what Biden said that that Nick didn't quite think was right, that didn't say things correctly, and. Nick kind of exploded the whole thing. And I, I just want him to just jump right in and talk a little bit about the key the key point he's trying to make with this with this post.
3: Nick, is that too
1: broad of an intro to you?
3: <laughs> no, I think it's it's okay. I'll jump right
4: in. First of all, thanks for having me and having us on this podcast today. So great to be back with you guys. Um uh, I think the thing with, about President Biden's statement, I, I so appreciated the intention behind it, which was to denounce these horrifying acts. But he, he described them as un-American, which I understand he's trying to reject this kind of behavior as acceptable in our society. But the term un-American is really problematic because it's not accurate. And I think part of the reason that it becomes people tell themselves it's okay or justify these horrifying acts is because they don't have an understanding of the history and the long history of this kind of violence against the Asian, the AAPI community um, in the United States. It's been going on as long as Asian people have been coming to this country. And that has been happening for a long hundreds of years, more than people I think normally think it's been happening. So I don't think I, 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 th- I think the thing that felt dangerous about that, that word to me is that it, it kind of upholds this idea that it's an aberration and it's aberrant behavior when actually it's not that at all. It has a long history. There is a long history, a pattern of violence that has been spanned much of American history towards Asian people, largely rooted in the idea that. Asian people are not American. As you can hear, there's, there's,
1: some, uh, there's some silence here. Humphrey, do you want to jump in and talk a little bit, go a little back into the history, this long history that, we're, that Nick has referenced, and talk yeah. a little bit about yeah some of the things that we were discussing earlier about, about this long history and this situation? So-
5: of course. So um, there has been a huge misconception, you know, in America, um, that Asian Americans are a recent immigrant group. And um, although that may that may not be false in some areas, let's say the East Coast, um, but the truth is, Asian Americans, Asian people, have been coming over to America, to the United States, since um, the later half of the um, 1800s. It started off with, uh, of course, everyone knows the Gold Rush uh, in in California. And um, But over time, uh, more and more immigrants have settled outside of uh, California and on the East Coast as well. And I think this misconception uh, uh, it's, it really stems from the fact that a lot of um, the, earlier, the earlier immigration history isn't really spoken about, like Nick said. And uh, most of the time, most of the people you, you may have encountered can only um, recall back to their... Sorry. Well, sorry. I also say most of the people that you uh you encounter in your in your life, let's say let's say your um, your classmates or your coworkers, there are there are uh, recent immigrants. For example, like uh, I I don't really I can't really recall anyone who can trace their uh, Asian American ancestry back um, back to the 1800s. But that's just because I'm from the East Coast. I feel like a lot of our history, like um, like Nick said. Um, Whoops. <laughs> it's been erased in a lot. Yeah.
4: Of, mm-hmm. I hope you don't mind me jumping in. No, of course. I, I kind of just lost my train of thought. It's no. kind of like my, my first rodeo. <laughs> no, speaking about these things publicly is really difficult because, you know, you know, you're know you on the record and you want to say the right thing. And I think that mm-hmm. that's, so I understand that. I hope you don't mind me jumping in. Oh, I, of course, go ahead. Something that Humphrey's talking about, I think is also an important important part of why this history gets erased and overlooked is that because of immigration laws that were enacted at the end of the 19th century in the, in the or 1875 with the Page Act and 1882 with the Chinese Exclusion Act, and those were constantly expanded through the end of World War II, you have 75 years of American history where it was very difficult for Asian people to come into the country. They yeah. were banned from immigrating. And so part of the reason that a lot of people feel like most of the people they encounter are recent immigrants is because a lot of them are a lot of Asian people were not allowed entry into this country until after the immigration act of 1965. Kennedy. Correct. Yeah. Kennedy. And that again, only allowed in a few people. So, cause there were quotas involved.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And so that is part of the reason why it also feels so recent. It's, 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 in ignorance of the history, and it's also a direct result of racist and xenophobic legislation that was upheld for 75 years of American history, which is multiple generations.
1: I think there is um, sort of this idea that there was, there was one great injustice done to Asian Americans in in American history that really is worth talking about. And that was the Japanese internment um, Japanese Americans, in turn, during World War II, and it's they're sort of under this rubric of, well, that was that was this terrible thing that happened. America admitted that it was wrong somehow, although even that that did not come. I think it was not officially apologized for in any way until relatively recently, actually. Yeah, I believe it was the um, 1980s. Yeah, so you you do have this continuous denial of the history denial of the injustice. And then we get to where we're at today to try to understand what about today's situation is causing this behavior. Um, And I think one of the things I think that Nick's blog captured so beautifully is saying that if we think that all American is all welcoming, all everyone's welcome. It's this melting pot, and everyone, all American, is a little bit of everybody, and it, and we're strong together. Well, yeah, great, but the reality is, all American doesn't really cut that way. The um, American history is one of a great deal of minor of of uh, discrimination and violence against minorities. It bega- I mean, <laughs> depends how you define minority. The entire history is one of some sort of racial, uh, some sort of racial violence that is done, whether it's to Native Americans, uh, African Americans who were brought here uh, under vi- violently. Um, so, so there's this long history. So, when you say, I think what you were getting at in the post is just saying that it's not American. Actually, is flips it on its head. You should actually say that discrimination against minorities is American and that we have to actually go beyond it now we have to actually say to we have to redefine the idea of americanness so that it takes into consideration our actual history we did these things to be american is to admit that we did these things and 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 insist that they not happen anymore and i think I, that's kind of what i thought your your blog post was hinting at maybe in the most idealistic sense. Did I miss any of that?
4: No, I think that's very much how I feel. I mean, it's sort of one of these things where it's, we tell ourselves a story
3: about who we are and I would prefer it if we walked the walk as opposed to just talk the talk. Hey, I just wanna jump in here. One thing you said about it,
2: you know, Biden calling this uh, un-American, Um, this event, um, in Atlanta, I mean, there's been other uh, events too, but specifically the, the murders in I want to call it terrorism in Atlanta, um, two and a half years ago, very similar shooting in Pittsburgh, um, in the Jewish community where a white guy, very angry, decided to, to murder 11 Jews and wound six. And one of the things he says, is that he wanted to kill all the Jews. And in one report of this uh, shootings in Atlanta, someone said he wanted to kill all the Asians. And that struck me so hard because it's like history is repeating itself. And it's it's going to keep happening unless we do something about it. And in my community in Pittsburgh, it was just, it was horrible. I mean, we, there's, there was so much going around it. And I know... Atlanta's hurting. I know the Asian community is hurting and there are people denying it and not calling it what it is. And for me, like just knowing what happened in Pittsburgh is similar to what happened in Atlanta. It, it makes my heart sink almost twice as much because it like for it happening here for, for like, I, I know Pittsburgh's strong. I know we are a very strong community, but Whenever it's it's I see it somewhere else, it's like it, it's not it's not my people, but I know how hard this hurts. And whenever it's called un American and it almost the same thing happened two and a half years ago, white people are, are killing people they don't like and that can't continue
3: at all. And
2: I I it makes me very upset. <laughs>
5: Yeah, I feel like I would agree with both of you guys, because when you call this thing un-American, you're trying to distance yourself from, from, from the suffering and from the hatred that actually exists in your country. By calling it un-American, you're, you're basically avoiding the issues within your own country. And um, that's not the way to solve any problems, in my opinion.
1: Can I, can I get a little personal with you guys? I mean, growing up, I mean... What was it like? I mean, did you both uh, experience in some form, like very blatant? I mean, Nick, you and I have talked about how in your professional life, you have had discrimination against you because of perceptions of what kinds of characters you could play. I, so I understand on a professional, level. Was, was it, were there other forms of, uh, of anti-Asian uh, behavior that you endured growing up? Um you know, leading up to this kind of professional these professional issues that you had,
3: yeah i mean i
4: I would hear it was mostly things that I would hear people say about other people that's the big thing that i would I would say that I observed, and I think part of that is because i'm i'm
3: I'm mixed, you know I'm half and it's the th- it's the stereotypes that you see people
4: make about you know, a a musician, even though I was a kid and I wasn't a professional musician, like the ideas that they would have about Asian musicians, for instance, that they're robotic or that, you know, they're, we are just naturally gifted people. So therefore we're, it's taken for granted that we can, you know, play the crap out of the violin or the piano as opposed to kind of recognizing artistry
3: and intelligence. And I mean, you know, aside from the sort of like people making
4: you know eye slanted eye jokes and and with as kids and stuff it's it's that was really the stuff that i kind of observed the other thing that i just growing up i grew up in michigan and so the big thing for me was that i really felt uh isolated there were not a ton of other asian people around in the midwest growing up and particularly in the detroit area the southeastern michigan area it's it's a lar- back then in the 80s and 90s, it was a largely white and black community. And I think part of that is the, part of the reason why, at least I was educated with this idea that the struggle for civil rights was sort of falls along a binary, and that this idea of American history is one that is largely told from the perspective of the East Coast and through a north-south narrative that's about writing the wrongs of righting the wrongs of slavery a large quote around um, the word right and, you know, sort of quote unquote winning the battle against civil rights. It's, it mostly, I, I, it took me until I was 24 years old to really acknowledge and understand that I'm and feel
3: American. I think until then, I really felt other and I really felt sort of homeless in a way. What was it
1: that happened when you're 24 that made you just feel more like that you could then identify as an American?
4: I had this crazy experience where I, I actually I, I'm I was, I'm in Houston right now about to do something at the Houston Grand Opera, and I was an apprentice here in the studio, and I did an audition, and I basically won the spot of Miss America at, at the sort of Miss Universe equivalent of vocal competitions, and so. Uh, it's called Cardiff Singer of the World, and I got to represent the United States at this competition. And I didn't really think about what that meant until I arrived. And when I arrived in Wales, uh, in the hotel, they had it was literally like the Olympics. they You walked into the lobby of the hotel, which was sponsoring this competition, and there was a flag for every country represented on the wall. And I looked up at the American when I thought, oh my gosh, that's that's me. And it's really the first time, I became aware of myself as an American. And I remember making choices about, they wanted us to bring songs of our country to this competition. They were really encouraging us to choose folk music and, you know, sort of things that represented our nation musically. And I could not bring myself to do it. I couldn't bring myself to just sing, you know, Shenandoah or some, American folk song because I just didn't feel American quote unquote American enough. And looking back on it now, it's because I just didn't feel
3: white enough. And that really bothered me. It's something that has kind of informed my professional
4: life ever since. And it's something that I kind of, I'm still unpacking to this day. I mean, I still find myself asking my, I I ask myself often, Do I have the right to sing that? You know, someone with my last name that no one can pronounce. (laughs) Do I have the right to sing that song by Debussy or these arias by Bach
3: or, you know, that aria by Benjamin Britten? It's an interest. And I constantly come
4: down on the side of, yes, I have the right to sing that. But I have to really work through that process inside my head every single time.
1: Well, that, that's really fascinating. I mean, that's the essence of what you just said to me is that music is something that transcends time and place. And I mean, you're singing Bach, okay? You're singing a, you know, 16, a German composer from the 1600s writing about music from the point of view of a very different religious experience than most people have today. Um, you know, uh, the kind of like weekly dedication to his craft of preparing his cantatas for each week's performance. And you're, you're bringing it to life today as a Asian American uh, 21st century imp- imp- interpreter. And and the reason that the music is so moving to us is that it still feels relevant, um, which sort of says really one of the, one of the things that's so, so beautiful about, art is that it does sort of transcend a lot of the things that tend to artificially make people feel that they're really different from from other people. But that's a really you really made me wonder like maybe we need to update our the the repertoire and the and the canon so that maybe the new american folk songs are a different set of songs than the ones we even sing right now. Maybe there's a whole new bunch um that we need to bring to the fore. Maybe that could be a project for you to work on. Down the road, like re a, a new American folk song book, so to speak, and I'm sure this, you know, I'm feeling very old right now because Humphrey is young compared to me. How old I'm, are you? I'm Humphrey? 25.
5: I just turned 25 okay. last month.
1: Okay, happy happy belated happy birthday. birthday. <laughs> we didn't talk. So you're 25. So here's my question uh, to go back to where we were earlier.
5: Yeah. I would love to answer that question because I was just formulating things state, okay, I want to say. Okay, have so much. <laughs> All right, get jump right in. Go for it. So. I have a little bit of a different experience than, than Nick. Um, growing up, I always saw myself as an American. I think it was kind of just being into me by my school teachers. For a gym class, we had to wear a T-shirt that says, proud to be an American, with a very big American flag on the middle. And we set the pledge every single day. And I know saying the pledge isn't really something that, um, you know, most most people would, um, would would, you know, do these days. But, you know – as a kid growing up, I, I felt proud to say because, you know, I thought I was an American. Here, here is, you know, this little Chinese kid who no one saw as, as an American. But then in class, we are told that we are American despite what we look like. So that really stuck out to me, even, even as, a, as a kid. I, as a kid, I know I was different than many of the kids in my class. But, you know, I grew up in a part of South Brooklyn called Bensonhurst, and at the moment, it's very um, it's it's very diverse. A lot of a- a lot of Asian communities and a lot of Hispanic communities here. But back then, when I was a little kid, it was mostly um, it was mostly Italian people, and um, and uh, something that really stuck out to me growing up was that they would always refer to us, even though we were born here, as Chinese. But but uh, to them, they never saw themselves as as Italian, even though they were Italian by by culture. And, you know, their last names are Italian. They always refer to themselves as American. And um, what stuck out to me was that they will always say something about like, oh, these Chinese people, are this, these Chinese people, are that. And I would hear them on the street. But then, but then when, we, when they talked about themselves, they, they, they wouldn't call themselves Italian. They would refer to themselves as American. So that got me thinking over the years as to um, what really is American, like American. Like who decides what is American or not? And, um, that, that was a real struggle for me, uh, over the last, over the last few years, as I try to uh, reconstruct my identity and about who I am and, uh, how people saw me. And, uh, that really stuck out because, um, uh, I'm, I'm part of this Facebook page. I'll, I'll tell you something about this It's called Bensonhurst yesterday, not today. And it's just a bunch of old Italian guys roasting how the neighborhood has changed over the years. And uh, these people will refer to um, the new new people coming in as, oh, the uh, the Hispanics, the Chinese, the Russians. But they refuse to see themselves, sorry, they refuse to see those people as Americans, as Americans just like them. them. They themselves are Italian, but they are able to see themselves as Italian and American. But those other people coming in, they're just their ethnic background. They're not Americans to them. So that's that, that. was kind of a uh, that was kind of a troubling, um, trouble thing for me to to uh, to witness. But as a kid, um, obviously I had um, that going on. But also, um, I experienced actually some racism from other minorities as well. I would go down to the deli, and you know, you you would think you know other minorities, my other minorities would be cool with you and all that. But then here you are in the deli, and then this count, the guy on the counter goes, "Hey, Chinito, hey, Chino." And, you know, like, they didn't say it in an endearing way. They, they try to say it in a way to intimidate you. So that, that kind of always rubbed me the wrong way growing up. Like, like is it offensive? Is it supposed to hurt me to be Chinese? Is it supposed to be, uh, oh, oh, is, is, there, is that supposed to be, like, put me down in a way? So I kind of struggled that growing up because I always thought, like, I should be a prou- a proud about who, who I am and where I came from. But then people on the street would try to use that to put me down. So that was always kind of like a uh, internal battle with me.
3: Oh, wow. You being, you you being uh,
1: younger, I, I just, my idealistic side and my positive side thinks, Oh, maybe Humphrey's experience is, is going to be a little bit different and he's going to see New York 21st century. He's like, you're in, you're 25. you barely, you were born in the mid nineties for goodness sakes. Um, So just the fact that you're, you've told the story that you just told, you know, this, this process goes on, you're searching for this identity. You're wondering, you're being treated at times in ways that, that make you question where you fit in. But I mean, you did say though, that in that school, you felt like you were being given this sort of American identity by being part of that school group. Like I was like a public school that you went to. Yeah. It's a
5: public school. Yeah. So they would like, you know, tell you, uh, where, like they would ask the co class where you're from, and each time a kid said a different place. Like, no, you're you're if you're born here, you're American. So I thought I'm born here, I, so I am American. So growing up, I never had any issues about whether I'm American or not. It's just that outside, when I'm when I'm outside of school, when I'm experiencing life from uh, uh from, from the outside, people will, would always see me as something other than American. But while in school you know, because I don't, because it was a public school and they have to um, enforce this or not, but in school, I always felt that I was just like every other kid, American. But it It's just that when I was on the street, people would see me otherwise.
3: Adam, That's, I uh, cut you off before.
2: No, no, you're, you're fine. Um, it, it's just uh, an interesting way to, to look at the uh, American identity and Nick was bringing that up before is, is the American identity the the what is is quoted in in quote marks uh, is that a white identity, or is it something different because this entire nation was found on immigration and being the melting pot, and I feel like you know Humphrey talked about so much school and like that's what I learned about in school was the melting pot, the diversity the the different people coming along, and we're we're all in this together, but Again, you walk out of the the school environment in that one place and you know on the streets or in the grocery store or where you go, it's a completely different narrative to different people. so it's kind of like, are we getting kind of sold this story of what America is, and it's actually something different, or are we all just perceiving everyone totally different It's really strange, and being adopted, that's something you know, I've struggled with myself is my own identity, but I've never seen myself of anything other than American because I don't have, I don't have another country's history in my roots. Like, I'm like, I don't, I don't have anything. There's, there's just nothing. So for me, it's like, I have to be American because there's literally nothing else. Um, So it's, 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 it's big. Identity is, is huge. That's kind of like, how you reflect on yourself and how you perceive the world is through your own personal identity. So I'd like to hear from, from you guys, um, you know, how you perceive the American identity versus your own
3: personal one.
5: I feel like, um, in my opinion, I feel like America's always trying to play, um, um, the revisionist historian, always, always trying to, um, go back and edit the mistakes that they did by, by, um, but just focusing on some key figures who they, who they think would make their history better. Uh, for example, uh, with Abraham Lincoln, they'll, they'll omit, they'll omit ser- certain things that he said that were controversial and celebrate him as a, as a, um, um, a freedom fighter. With uh, Martin Luther King, they will omit the socialist things that he said while, while um, he was campaigning for um, um, civil liberties. And and praise the things that go along with what America deemed to be appropriate. But at the same time, uh, Martin Luther King lived in a time where um, the Red scare was still pretty big. So um, I feel like American history is just a, a, um, a big compilation of um, editing editing um, historical figures and editing events that fits its agenda. Humphrey, um, you're a teacher, what do you teach? Well, here's the funny thing uh i graduated with a um, degree in history but i teach science don't ask me how i i I just took an exam and i qualified (laughs) and here i am teaching middle school science
1: well i think you make a good history teacher i want to throw it out you might want to go get get back into history down the road but we need some we need good scientists too um yeah that was that was very well put uh humphrey the idea that we are revisionist history we create more than we realize. We create actual history from what we decide to remember from the past. And, you know, (laughs) collectively, that comes across in so many different ways, whether it's what we see on television, um, what we see in history books. Um, I mean, let's face it, we are seeing a sea change. There's a huge, huge sea change of awareness that's happening right now in our country. Um, We have some kind of major upheaval happening. Um, there's all kinds of training going on, and controversy about racial issues, about um, people, you know, you see controversy of people in the army, they're learning about about um uh, about racism, and there's there's all kinds of objections. why Why do we need to study our racist history? Well, because we're supposed to learn from it and do better. Um, so I get this feeling of this this foment. This this huge um, energy kind of swirling about, and nothing's really taken uh, a firm root. But there is anger now, and there's a desire for change. Now, there's been plenty. Uh, sorry, there's been Albert. plenty. There's been plenty of attacks against Asian Americans. This one, just like the George Floyd mm-hmm. attack that uh, the, the murder of George uh, Floyd, it seems like this uh, attack in Atlanta is finally galvanizing anger. And I think that might be a sign of, is it a sign of what, healing? Is it a sign of certain groups of people saying enough is enough? What's, what is going on or am I misreading the, the moment?
5: Albert, I, I will um, answer a question after, um, after this. Uh, on the contrary, I would actually like to disagree with you on that. Um, I feel like it's a mis- misconception that people are, are only starting to realize um, what, what is happening in this country. I think people even back then in the 1800s realized that uh, these, atro- these atrocities were wrong and that, and that um, things should be done. For example, I'll give you guys, I'll give you guys uh, a little bit of a um, biography about this man I've been reading about. Um, so this guy, his name is Wong Chin-Fu. Uh, he was a Chinese-American that lived in America in the 1870s. And back then, he was, he, he was preaching that, um, preaching for um, Asian Americans to have the same rights as, as white Americans. He was preaching for um, a, Asian Americans to, to, um, to fight back and to challenge the, the racist remarks made by white Americans. So I don't think that people are, are only starting to fight back. I think people have been fighting back throughout the centuries. It's just that their stories have not been told. And if you if you look back to some of the things he's been talking about, many of the problems that he spoke about are kind of relevant today. For example, um, look through look through any any like um, uh, bad review of a Chinese restaurant. You you might find a comment about how they're eat, they're cooking dogs and cats. Well, guess what? In uh, in 1877, um, Wang Fu actually says something about this. He said, I never knew that rats and dogs were good to eat until I learned it from Americans. So here he's talking about how uh, he never thought dogs, cats, and rats were food until he learned that uh, Americans were, were saying that's what he ate. So I feel like a lot of these issues and, and a lot of these problems um, that Asian-Americans face ha- have been ongoing. It's just that um, the fighters and the heroes of, this bat- of the battle that, that uh, has been going on are not mentioned in our history books.
3: I'm going to second you there. I mean, what's really interesting
4: is we we have a really clear narrative of the fight for civil rights for black Americans in this country. And that's a very well-documented history that still needs clarification, because as Humphrey was saying, we do have this tendency to want to be revisionist with it and kind of pick the bad parts and sort of cherry pick our, our, our narrative of what we're telling ourselves. And, but it's interesting, a lot, of that, a lot of that journey has been buttressed by civil rights activism from Asian Americans, like um, the gentleman Humphrey was just talking about. I mean, part of the reason, the 14th Amendment, for instance, that grants people due process and recognizes people as citizens, that... that the interpretation of that was not challenged. It was obviously put into the constitution because of what was going on after the civil war, but it didn't actually get interpreted as law until Asian Americans were contesting anti-Asian laws saying they violate the 14th amendment. And it was through victories there that we now have this under- these understandings that are sort of progressive understandings of these amendments. And I- you know, Korematsu versus the United States, which is the uh, Supreme Court case that, where th- th- a family sued the United States government because of Japanese internment, that's the first time the word racism and race is mentioned in any Supreme Court decision. So, what year was that? I don't remember. Okay. I think it was in the 50s. I could be wrong.
3: It's just these, it's,
4: we've always been a part of this conversation, but for some reason we continually get left out of the the narrative that is taught. And so this, this moment of reckoning that's resulting from this act of domestic terrorism that targeted three Asian businesses and killed six Asian women and one white woman and one white man
3: in Atlanta last week is just one point on a much longer journey that I think a lot of people are just unaware of. I guess one of the one of the points I was making earlier was in a sense
1: sort of saying that maybe we can use this moment to begin to craft a narrative and a history of Uh, Asian-Americans that will become part of what we all know about Asian-American experience in our country. That, that, if that, that might be a way forward to actually put this narrative together in a compelling way um, so that everybody is aware of it and whether that's just like common things, wanting to see the stories being told on television wanting to see them see, uh, uh, portrayed in movies. What, I mean, that's really what this is all about, right? When people, when people say, I, I'm invisible, I want to see my stories uh, represented in the culture, this clearly now has to be a story that can't be go- going back to where it was before those people were murdered mm-hmm. in Atlanta. We can't go back to that pretending it doesn't exist. We have to now begin to piece back together what was taken away or overlooked, or however you want to use the phrase. I
4: think one of the things that I find really heartening about the last 12 months, especially, but and maybe the last few years, and I'm sure it's been going on longer, I've just maybe not been as aware of it, um, is there has been a really, there's been a real reframing of American history lately, largely because of historians of color. And It's a framing of American history that sort of looks at American history as a history of white supremacy and how basically that definition of whiteness has constantly expanded
3: in order to preserve supremacy and superiority over time. And in an effort to uphold that and protect it, Horrible
4: things have been done to communities of color and different things. And sometimes the same things, you know, I mean, the violence is one thing, but it's also, I mean, for, I think something that particularly Asians and Asian Americans are really accustomed to is this idea of being used as a wedge by white supremacists in order to sow extra division and it's 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 such a dangerous thing because it gives it gives the sense that 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 definition of whiteness is being expanded to include asian people to some asians and
3: in reality it's just user it's like being used and it it leaves people i think feeling
4: in a place where you almost feel like you don't have a right to to speak up about the things that you're seeing and experiencing because you know you you start to buy into this model minority myth. But Kathy Park Hong writes a lot about this in her book Minor Feelings and I cannot recommend this book highly enough to everybody. Everybody should read it. If you're looking for something to read right now and want to educate yourself a, a little bit about this and how Asian Americans feel about these issues, it is a wonderful lens into that emotional landscape. Say by the, the name way, of the book again, Nick. Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. Uh, By the way, Korematsu versus the United States was 1944. And Mm -hmm. just so you know, Korematsu lost and the word racism appears in one of the dissents.
5: I just want to piggyback off what Albert said before I respond to Nick. Um, I I think we can't talk about uh, the plight for Asian American equality without talking about um, uh, Black Lives Matter. I feel like, uh, yeah, uh, I feel like um, the recent events that happened with uh, George Floyd and other uh, uh, and other people like uh, Breonna Taylor and, and Elijah. I forgot his last name. Mick uh, I believe, right? Elijah McClain. I, I believe um, the response from the public uh, from those tragedies um, and in, in many ways gave the Asian American strength and courage to actually um, voice their opinions and and help them realize that their voice matters. I feel like for the longest time, especially uh, especially. Uh, during my time as a person who's more politically aware, I always thought that my voice as an Asian American wouldn't matter. And that's because I always thought that my voice, my political voice was what's always going to be ignored because, you know, we make a very small portion of the population. Um, many, of our, many of our politicians don't even mention us in, our po- in the polls or, men- or mention any of our issues. So I, I feel like, um, we, we owe, as Asian American communities, we owe a lot of that courage, a lot, a lot of that strength to march out in the public to um, the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, seeing all those different people, not just people who are Black, come out and support, um, um, support those families and support the movement really, you know, in a way gave me courage to stand up for myself and realize that my voice, my individual voice matters.
3: Adam? Yeah, uh, there's a, a lot that's been been said. And, uh, you know, I want to
2: thank you guys for for saying that um, one thing that we kind of uh, Nick mentioned, I believe, was, um, you know, kind of the uh, the distancing and uh, kind of everyone being s- separated and sort of just, um, you know, the, the polarization of the United States and, and where we are as, as a people in a country. Um, I, I, I feel like those things are, are really kind of growing to be dangerous. Um, you know, Humphrey said that Asian American politicians aren't, aren't mentioning their, their own community and they're trying to play to a particular side, um, and, you know, play, you know, politics just, just for politics and and their own agenda rather than their people's agenda. With what's, what's happening now with this you know, social movement uh, with the AAPI community, along with other s- social movements and social justice, are we actually moving towards less polarization or are we fighting that fight of, of making it um, more polarized and more different? Um, you know, how, how is this social movement going to work towards healing rather than letting everyone, you know, be be on different sides.
3: I think
4: one of the things that I see people really trying to grapple with
3: is learning how to talk about, um, learning how to talk about these issues, especially when we
4: talk about them in terms of like, what is affecting what group of people and trying to not fail at being intersectional trying to succeed at being intersectional and recognizing that no person is just one thing, you know. A black woman is both woman and black. An Asian woman is both a woman and an Asian. And I mean there was um the New York Times quoted somebody's tweet that was like, you know, pointing things like that out where the other day it was on their Instagram where they said, someone said something along the lines of, people seem to think it's a woman's issue as opposed to an Asian issue. And guess what? Newsflash, it's dot, 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 both. And why is that so mind blowing? And I feel like the more we recognize these intersectionalities, I feel like there's much greater hope in recognizing the humanness in all people. I also think that the work of anti-racism really is, it's less about point, it should be less about pointing fingers. And I think ultimately it that is not the ultimate point or purpose of anti-racism work. It's not to point fingers. It is calling people out because you need people to be responsible for their behavior. But also, the main thing you're asking for is to stop dehumanizing people and recognize people as individuals. Just because Humphrey walks by on the street, you cannot make an assumption based on his looks that he is not an American or he is American. You have to just acknowledge Humphrey as an individual. Same with me. Just because you see my last name doesn't mean you know anything about me because I'm an individual person. I don't represent all Greek people. I don't represent all Chinese people. I certainly don't represent all gay people. I just represent me. And I feel like the more we can learn to recognize people as individuals and kind of catch our prejudicial presumptions, the more hope we have of being knit together as a society because that that enables you to hold people's differences more easily than it does by insisting people all be the same.
2: That is, uh, that is great to hear. Uh, you use the word hope, and I was going to ask you guys later, you know, like, is there hope for this? And you're, you're giving us us hope. And one thing you said was that we need to be able to talk about our feelings. You need to be, talk about how we feel Um, And, and using that kind of language accurately and effectively as an educator, Humphrey, I mean, do you guys teach that in in school? Is that, uh, is that part of the the conversation to our children is uh, being able to identify emotions and speak to them accurately is like, is, is that a part of the American identity right now? Or even, even, even the conversation that we're having?
5: I would say it more so depends on the school. Um, at my school, every morning, we will have like a morning meeting and we'll discuss, we don't want to discuss much about school, we just talk about our feelings, how, how is our morning, how we're feeling right now. So I feel like there is a mo- uh, movement, especially more progressive areas to talk more about how we're feeling and more about um, people's emotions and being able to talk freely about how, how you're feeling. But
3: I, I don't think it's the case with every school.
2: Yeah, I mean that's that's um a big part of, of what we're finding. I mean, along with this podcast, it's all about vulnerability. And this conversation along with inclusion, along with anti racism, is is I think just kind of really getting started. And part of, of what we're trying to do is is keep this conversation going because it's so important to tell people how we feel and maybe even more importantly is understand how we feel ourselves uh, because there's a lot of emotions that, that go through, especially with national tragedies like this, that the being able to, to accurately talk about them and accurately communicate how we're feeling uh, is going to be able to, you know, make our agenda known, which is inclusion and anti-racism. Uh, Nick, you, you were, you know, kind of speaking about, you know, what's what's coming next and, and the hope for it um, is part of, uh, you know, the this conversation to um, accurately speak as to, to how the um, American Asian and uh, Pacific Islander community feels. Is that a part of the, the conversation that um, y'all are having?
4: It's interesting. I was listening to a podcast earlier today about how media coverage of this from the San Francisco Chronicle, and they were, the people who were speaking were both Asian journalists. And that is part of the conversation. And it's such a complicated thing because part of the thing that I think gets, part of the thing that is challenging about it is that the Asian, Asian American, Pacific Islander community is actually really diverse. I mean it includes East Asians, South Asians, Pacific Islanders and I mean this idea that someone who is Filipino, someone who's Chinese, someone who is Sri Lankan and someone who is Hawaiian
3: all occupy the same racial quote unquote space. It's 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 sort of um I don't know, it, it oversimplifies the complexity of it all.
4: and people, I would agree. I think people feel really differently within the community. And I also, I'm, I, please speak to this, I'm free, because I'm, I'm sure you've got experience with this too, but generationally, I think there is a lot of
3: difference. Oh yeah. As well.
5: So uh, what, what I have to add to this conversation is this. What I've noticed is that uh, when, when you group agents on the monolithic group, you, you tend to ignore the people in the margins. So for example, you um uh, when you think of an Asian person, you might think of a Chinese, Japanese, or a Korean person. But like Nick said, that's not all Asian people. We have uh, Filipinos, Laotians, Thai, and a whole bunch of different um, communities that are often ignored. And uh, when, when you only look at what you assume is Asian, you ignore the problems of, of all those other groups who might need your help. For example, I'll give you some statistics. Uh, in California, a lot of the important, a lot of the poverty uh, in the Asian community come from um, uh, communities um, that are from former refugee nations like, uh, sorry, uh, refugees coming from former war-torn nations like Laos or um, Vietnam or uh, uh, Cambodia. And because of their circumstances, because how they came here, a lot of those people are facing po- poverty that, um, that is often ignored by mainstream um, politicians because on paper they're Asian and their possession with Asian is a successful person working in tech or working in law or working in the medical field. So that that kind of uh drowns out their struggles a little bit. And um another point I wanted to make I just wrote down, let me go back to my notes, is that there's actually a a huge disparity between uh what I as a young Asian American feel versus what my parents versus what my grandparents uh, will feel about race. For example, um, you know, me as, a, as an Asian American kid growing up, I, I like the idea of a pan-Asian movement. I like the idea of a, of a pan-Asian brotherhood. For example, you, you go down the street in Brooklyn, you can see all the Mexican kids hang out with the El Salvadorian kids, hang out with the uh, Ecuadorian kids. But if you, go to, if you go to a group of Asian kids, and you ask them uh, what their culture is, you will see that most of them, are, are going to be Chinese. And another group's going to be Korean. You rarely see that pan-Asian uh, movement going on uh, in, in the United States. And uh, I would like to be that change. I feel like it's very important for, for, um, for Asian-Americans to reach out to other people who are not part of their same cultural background and realize that they have more alike than they are different. And uh, another another issue is that I feel like a lot of the older generations need to realize that uh, racist, racist problems in the Asian community is a Black problem, is a Latino problem. It's all systemic. It's, it all stems from racism. Uh, when I talk to older people about, about this, they seem to always think that um, their racial problem stems from another race, r- racial group. For example, um, a lot of elderly Chinese people are deeply afraid of Black people. I'm, I'm going to be blunt about this. They are. And, and the reason for this is the lack of information, the lack of knowledge, and the lack of outreach and, and exposure to um, other cultures and, and other people within those cultures. And uh, I feel like that needs to change because um, it's really troubling because whenever you see, whenever you see a, a, uh, a news about an Asian American being attacked, the first thing that an older, an, an older uh, Asian person would ask, oh, is this person Black? Is this person Latino? And these are questions that I feel like um, are, are going to hurt the movement more than more than um, help the movement as a whole. It if, it, uh, it kind of creates division, and and division is not good in, in a movement like this. You need all the manpower you can get. You need all the unity you can get.
4: It's buying into that model minority myth.
1: Nick, hey, could you briefly explain what that is? Model
4: minority myth. So it kind of, it stems from, I mean, my understanding of it, I'm not an expert and I'm not a historian. I, I sing songs, but my understanding of it is that it stems from that Immigration Act of 1965, which really only allowed for highly qualified, in theory, it allowed for very only highly qualified people to come into the country. And so you got an influx of very highly qualified Asian immigrants coming into this country who became you know, doctors, scientists, tech people, engineers, and working in sort of very white collar, highly specified professions. And that's this idea is that these immigrants came to the country in the right way. They adopted our ways and assimilated best. And so, therefore, they set the example for all other minorities to assimilate into quote-unquote american culture
3: and if you don't do
5: that you're a failure and that's what they're trying to make you feel i gotta tell you the decision to be an opera singer <laughs> how do your family react to that i'm just curious i know like i'm not trying to be stereotypical but i know asian parents and they want you to be a doctor or, <laughs> or a lawyer <laughs>
4: well my dad is a scientist and you know that that was it like he was they he on top of that he's you know he's he, he's a scientist himself so he there's also like this you know wanting his son to follow in the family tradition kind of a thing but yeah doctor lawyer those were the options that were presented as good ones mm-hmm. to me and um i mean my parents have always been very supportive i you know they in terms of my music career and they've been really they they come to everything and they you know they allowed me to follow my path but I mean, well into my time as an apprentice, like after finishing my master's, when I was starting my professional career, I kept hearing, you know, law school's always an option.
5: <laughs> uh, well, luckily for me, my parents, uh, my mom never really cared what I studied. Like I, I'm an Asian kid, first generation st- studying history. That's a big red flag in the Asian community. But my, but my family that never really cared. Like as long as I enjoyed it, as long as I didn't get in trouble, I can study whatever I
3: wanted. So guys, we've heard yeah, quite a bit, um, you know, from, from history
2: to, to the recent events, um, but I'd, I'd like to kind of to leave it as to, to what comes next and what you guys want to see uh, for our country. Uh, we're kind of wrapping, uh, you know, coming in on, on the, the end of our show here. So I want to see, uh, you know, wh- what, what's, what can we do right now as, as people?
3: You know, I think that the
4: work you guys are doing with this podcast actually is really important because there's a lot, I think there's a lot of talk about toxic masculinity in in the world. And I feel like a lot of that stems from an inability to process and share painful emotions. And it's a, it's a, it's a fear of vulnerability and willing to be vulnerable, willingness to be vulnerable. There's a lack of that willingness. And one of the hard things about the work of anti-racism and anti-xenophobia and anti-bigotry in general is that it asks people to sit with the possibility that they don't know everything and that they could possibly be hurting the people around them. And I think that that is, and they might be doing something wrong, quote unquote. And I think that brings up a lot of really difficult and uncomfortable emotions and it leaves people feeling really vulnerable. And
3: it's the the fear of that feeling that causes so much of the
4: violence and the resistance and the strife against these initiatives. And so my hope is that we can all learn to breathe, Learn to
3: create a safe space to share those feelings around it, and find some common ground.
5: Uh, what I, I'm th- oh, sorry, Nick, no, that's, no, oh. that's good. So, uh, what I think what needs to be done is that more people from the uh, from the minority community need to step up. I'm not saying they're not stepping up now, but I, I feel like um, more people who are more aware of these situations and more aware of the fight of these communities need to step up and take on traditional roles of leadership, such as being a politician or being a uh, teacher or being a community leader. I know oftentimes um, uh, we think that these, those roles can't be attained by us, but I, I feel like that's just a little mental, mental block that we have for ourselves. And if we step into these roles with our attitude, I feel that can really inspire um, the next generation to continue continue this journey and to inspire other people who are not part of our community to fight with us. That's just what I think. That's why I became a teacher. <laughs> I, actually, I actually became a teacher in a program called uh, NYC Men's Teach. And it's a program that, um, um, that I joined when I was in college to try to help minority men become teachers because the, uh, the city felt that the city lacked uh, um, men in, in the teaching programs. And uh, a lot of times um, um, in minority communities, there isn't, like, there isn't like a strong, um, supportive male figure for, uh, for students. So that's why they made this program. Um, there are some things I don't agree with it, but for the most part, I feel like it's a positive program. And uh, pu- putting more minority people in positions where they can influence others in a positive way, I think it's a huge benefit for the next generation.
3: Right on. Really, really, really great. Um, I first want to just say how proud I am to
1: call both of you my friends. Well, you too, Adam. But our our two guests tonight. Um, I suspected that this was going to be really a really good conversation, and I could listen to the two of you talk. We know people people prefer the podcast to be about an hour, but I could have easily <laughs> listened to you guys talk for a very very long time. Um, I want to just encourage. Uh, the listener, our listeners to write to both of you, send a DM to Greshinois to uh, that's Nick's uh, handle, Instagram handle. You'll see it in our feed and casually Brooklyn is Humphrey's Instagram feed. Uh, Drop them a DM, continue the conversation there, go online, uh, educate yourself, get information. Um, You have to play a role. Every single person out there, Uh, whether it is donating money to causes that are educating people and helping people who've suffered as a result of what happened in Atlanta and elsewhere, Uh, volunteer where you can, and uh, very importantly, report hate incidents. Uh, You need to report what's happening because it's happening invisibly in too many places, and uh, people who are victimized often have to be Victimized twice by being afraid to go to authorities to tell people what's happened. So we need to stand up for each other. Um, I hope we can continue this conversation, and I hope uh, that we'll continue to see this um, conversation yield greater understanding and greater opportunity for that common ground. And I would love, really, just love to have you guys come back down the road to continue what we've discuss tonight. Uh, Adam, Any anything you'd like to finish up with?
2: Yeah, um, Albert, those are, are great uh, ways for people to help out. Um, and and also just want to echo what uh, Nick was saying, um, and uh, the Stoics saying, know thyself. So um, this has been a great conversation and I, I truly appreciate uh, you guys coming on today. This has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast.
5: I'm Adam Glinski.
1: I'm Albert Imperato.
5: I'm Nick Pond. And I'm Humphrey Sweet. Thanks
1: for listening.